Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Hey, on the seats in front of you, you see the little thing called the Joy Project. Uh, we launched this last week, every year around Christmas time. Uh, we do the Joy Project. It's a special offering that we take up, and all of what we bring in for that goes back into our community to helping out uh, with families in need during the Christmas time, uh, supporting our strategic ministry partners, uh, and into the local schools. We give a lot of cards to uh, guidance counselors and things who are aware of families that are struggling around this time. It is just a, a great opportunity for us to demonstrate the love of Jesus in practical ways. Uh, so uh, we'll be running that for the next few weeks. If you want any more information, there are some of these on the seats in front of you, and you can get more at the welcome desk in the back, or the, the front, depending on your perspective. <laughs> It's going to be a weird day. All right. <laughs> Disclaimer, before we get into the message, I'm going to start with something that is very passionate and dear to my heart, so I'm probably going to get loud, uh, and sometimes that gets interpreted as yelling or angry. I just want to be really clear, not yelling, not angry, just super passionate about this particular subject matter. I get fired up about it. There's no intended criticism or judgment or insult, just uh, it's important to me. <laughs> So, in life, we are entrusted with a limited amount of resources. How we invest and what we do with those resources is a reflection of the views, values, and understandings that we have. In other words, what you do with the time, talent, treasure, and opportunities you have in this life is a reflection of the values and priorities of your heart. As a pastor, my concern for the American church, for the American Christian, is the frequency with which the American part comes first. The resources, the time, the energy, the focus, the trust, the faith that we place on the things of this world ahead of and before the gospel can be very alarming that we turn to money, to politics, to social systems, science, and government as a place for our trust and our hope and our faith, investing in them, thinking that this is what's going to give us security, this is what's going to give us peace, this is what's going to bring us protection and comfort and joy. This is what's going to fix what is broken in this world. And we say things like, oh, if we could just get a majority in the house, if we could get this person in office, if we could just fix this thing, address this thing, the world will get better. And here's the thing, church, it won't. You cannot fix broken things by putting broken people into broken places. It will never work. The fundamental problem of our culture is not political, it's not social, it's spiritual. And yet so often, even for the Christian, the spiritual is the last thing that we'll turn to. We turn to the social stuff, we turn to the political stuff, and we will spend so much time engaging them. Especially during this season, people will ask me, because of the platform, they will go, what's your stance on this? Gospel issue, I'll tell you. Not, I probably won't. Here's why. You come to me and you say, hey, let's just, for example, say, what are your thoughts on gun control? 
There's a 50-50 chance my thoughts on gun control don't align with yours. So if I share with you my thoughts and you disagree, you're less likely to hear what I have to say about Jesus because you don't agree with what I have to say about gun control. So what I have done is sacrificed impact and effectiveness for the kingdom of God. I've made myself less efficient to do what God has called me to do over an issue that could not matter less in the face of eternity. But the freeness, the flippancy, the ease with which Christians will engage subjects that really don't matter is truly alarming to me. Everything that we invest, everything that we pour into, every resource that goes into this world, the trust, the hope, the faith, the work, the effort, everything that you put into this world is built on sinking sand, and it will fall soon. But a lot of times, we still pour all this energy into it. We're like, man, I'm just going to sit over here, and I'm going to build castles in the sand, and it's a really nice, I'll tell you, it's a nice castle that you built, right? You got the four, like, story thing with bucket stuff everywhere. You're like, look, I took a toothpick, and I made the sand look like stone, so it's authentic, and I got an operating gate for a sandcastle. Like, how you pulled that off? I don't know. It's a beautiful sandcastle, but you know what's going to happen with the most beautiful, amazing sandcastle ever built? The tide's going to come. And it gets washed away like everything else. But the amount of time that we will spend talking about, debating, arguing, bickering, damaging relationships and losing rapport over the social political elements of the world around us is alarming to me. Right, I mean, we will say, like, it's like we feel so entitled to share our views, no matter how unintelligent or uneducated those views are, as if we are the leading expert on how to resolve an issue. If we could just do this or fix that, or people just listen to me, the world would be a better place. No, it would be a different place, and it would be better for you. Right, but we will say to anyone who will listen, we will share our thoughts, our views, our ideas. We will slap the stupidest bumper stickers on our car so that everybody knows where we stand on all of these issues. But when it comes time to talk about Jesus, we get so quiet, you can hear a snail crawl three blocks away. As the people of God, we are called to a mission of God. That our hearts, our values, and our priorities would be fixed first and foremost on him. And what is concerning to me is that Jesus is coming back, church, and we will all give account for what we do with the resources and the time that he entrusted to us. And my concern for the American Christian is a lot of us are going to have nothing to show him but sandcastles. Why? And listen, I'm not saying you shouldn't play in the sand at all. Okay, there's no, you can't have fun in the sand ever. God made the sand, you can enjoy it, it's fine. But when you spend all your time playing in the sand and the neglect of your home, there's a problem. We've been called to something greater, given a greater purpose, a greater mission, not to build things out of sand that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to build an eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. And that kingdom-mindedness and kingdom focus is where our text kind of leads us. So if you had a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. We're going to finish out Hebrews 12 today, uh, and then next week we end our eight-month journey through the book of Hebrews, which is like kind of crazy to think about. Like there are people like you could have gotten like basically pregnant and gone to full term 
in the time that we've been in Hebrews. Right? That's a weird thing to say. Why am I doing this? Um, <laughs> but this whole chapter is about connecting this imagery of the Christian life to a race. It's a very common theme in the New Testament that the Christian life is like a race. And so we are called to condition ourselves to be spiritual athletes through focus, dedication, and perseverance. And the emphasis of our particular text this morning is on the aspect of perseverance. Because what the Hebrew church that this was written to is facing is persecution at the hands of Rome for their faith in Jesus. So when they became Christians, right, they left behind their friends, their family, their community, a rich cultural heritage in order to follow Jesus. But now they're experiencing persecution for following Jesus and they're starting to feel discouraged and they're starting to question their faith. And what's getting worse about it is that all those friends and family that they left behind are now gathering around them and criticizing them. You've forsaken your kin, you've forsaken your country, you've forsaken your blood and your people, and look at what's happening to you now. You're getting attacked, you're getting beaten, you're getting persecuted. You know why? Because you abandoned God. The punishment and the hardship you are experiencing is because you turned your back on God. You're going in the wrong direction. Hardship has a way of making us question what we're doing. Of making us stop and evaluate. Because we assume that obstacles mean we're running in the wrong direction. That's what the early church was struggling with. They're encountering struggle. They're encountering hardship. And they're wondering, am I going the wrong way? And that is what our text deals with. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What he's describing here is the giving of the law. And we've all seen that movie, right? Charleston Heston goes up on the mountain and gets the perfectly carved little tablets of stone. The end, moving on. When we look at the Old Testament, we like to paint with big, broad brushstrokes. Right? Let's just get the main themes, big ideas, and let's move on. And we skip over, gloss over a lot of the details. Well, sometimes when you gloss over details, you miss really important stuff. The giving of the law was a spectacle to behold. Dark clouds filled the sky, veined with silver lightning. Around the mountain, thunder rolled down its slopes. A great heavenly trumpet resounded, and the people trembled. God descended upon the mountain in flame as the mountain itself was wrapped in smoke. The earth shook. Beneath their feet, the mountain trembled. Moses called out to God, and God answered him in a voice like thunder, called Moses to go up onto the mountain and told everyone else not to touch it. Which kind of, you wonder, like, who was tempted to do that? Right? It's covered in fire and lightning. 
Like, anybody like, hey, I'll, let's go climb Mount Doom. Nah, man, I'm good. Like, I'm going to stay down here where it's not that. Like, why did they have to? I don't know. I don't know why he had to get told that, but this is the picture that they saw. The sky dark, the only light came for lightning and flame. The ground beneath them, the very earth itself shook. This is what they saw. This is what they experienced when the law was given. So that they would understand, etched into their brain, the significance of the law that God gave them. This is the unapproachable holiness of God. In preparation for it, they spent two days preparing. First, they, they washed all their clothes, to which all the, the wives and mothers were like, really, you're going to make a big deal out of that? Sound like my husband, acting like he needs a parade every time he does laundry. Well, he does. But you have a million, millions of people in the desert trying to do laundry without a lot of water. <laughs> it's a pretty impressive feat. They abstained from sexual relations for two days in order to keep themselves ceremonially clean, and no one was allowed to go to the mountain under pain of death. This is the unapproachable holiness of God. If anyone, any living thing, came in contact with the mountain, it was to be put to death by stone or arrow. Do you know what those two means of execution have in common? They're done from a distance. The holiness of God is so great that you cannot be touching a thing that touched the thing that touched the thing that touched the holiness of God. Yeah, that's it. All of this etched into their minds something that our culture and the modern church so easily loses sight of. The fear of God in recognition of his incredible holiness held up against our incredible sinfulness. This is the foundation of the Hebrew faith. They started with a fundamental understanding that God was so holy that you could not approach him, that you could not go near to him and live. This is what they learned at Sinai. Sinai is not where our race ends. It's where our race begins. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Zion, to the gathering of a multitude of angels at the assembly of the firstborn. What is that about? That's about Jesus. Six times in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the firstborn. This has led some, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, to conclude that Jesus is a created being, because to be born is to be created. So if you've ever wondered why those two groups that do talk about the Bible and Jesus are not Christian, that's one of the primary reasons. Their view of God is, or their view of Jesus is errant, flawed to its core. See, the word that's used for firstborn here, prototokos, is less about birth and more about priority. 
It's a description of the authority of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus, that he is exalted above all creation. And what we see here in verse 22 is a very strong tonal shift. We start in Sinai with fear and trembling. Now we move to Zion and we've got this feast celebration with Jesus where here's the cool bit, where our names are registered in heaven. If you belong to Jesus, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, your name is recorded eternally in the heavenly places written in the kingdom of God. That's pretty neat. This section is almost lyrical. It's a joyous celebration that in Jesus we approach God, not with dread, but with delight. Because in Jesus we're not approaching God in our sinfulness, but in his righteousness. Through Moses we approach God with fear and trembling. Through Jesus we approach him with confidence. Through his blood. We are adopted into the family of God, made children of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. Under the rule and reign of God, given the work of God to complete the mission of God for the glory of God. All through the blood that was shed. Blood that cries out a better word than the blood of Abel. See, Abel's blood, when shed, cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood, when shed, cries out for grace. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a warning, a call to obedience. That those who ignored the word of God at Sinai died in the desert. That God decreed that no one above the age of 20, with the exception of the faithful spies Joshua and Caleb, would be allowed to enter the promised land that he was leading them to, that millions of people died in the desert because they did not heed God's word spoken through Moses. If that is how God responds to those who ignore his word, how much more do you think he will respond to those who ignore his son? This is a very clear, do not get it twisted kind of moment. No one who denies, rejects the gospel will escape God. No one who rejects Jesus, and I'm not talking about for a moment, I'm not talking about for a season, I'm not talking about for a point in their life, but who ultimately rejects Jesus will be saved. The point of what he's saying here is that God is not ultimately just going to decide like, oh, I'm just going to, I love everybody so much because I'm a great big teddy bear and I want to give everybody warm, fuzzy, fluffy, squishy teddy bear hugs. And so I'm just going to save them all no matter what. We have this life to respond to the gospel. We have this life to respond to Jesus. 
We have opportunities in this life to serve him and to glorify him and to invest in his kingdom. And we have this life and this life alone. So when Jesus returns, what we show him, will it be work in his kingdom or will it be castles made of sand in this one? See, all of this is a tale between two mountains. At Sinai, God shook the earth. At Zion, he'll shake not just the earth, but the heavens. All creation will be shaken, and that which is shaken will be removed. All that will remain will be the kingdom of God and those who belong to it and the work that they've done for it. All that remains in this life is the unshakable kingdom of God. What the author's doing here is brilliantly binding together two things that we have a tendency to separate. Have you ever like heard this or noticed, like you read through the Old Testament and then you read through the New Testament, if you're just doing a quick glance, it, it can kind of seem like God's a little bipolar. Right, like it's two different people. There are people that, that teach that, that oppose that, that go, oh, look, this is God of the Old Testament. It's a God of wrath and judgment, that he's angry, that he's mean, that he's uncompromising, that he's filled with wrath. And the God of the New Testament, but he's a God of love and grace and mercy. He's kind and understanding. He's gentle. He's forgiving. And that has led some to go, you know what, we should just do away with the Old Testament. Let's just toss that aside because we're not Old Testament Christians, we're New Testament Christians. We're not under the Old Covenant, we're under the New Covenant. So we don't really need to worry about what is old because that doesn't apply anymore. God's not like that anymore. That's a form of heresy called Marcionism. That God is different people, different expressions of himself between Old and New Testament. And it's wrong. How does this section end? What's the last phrase in verse 29? Not God was a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. God is not changed. But what happens is we like to hyper-focus on the God of one of these mountains. We get the, the mount, we focus on the God of Sinai or the God of Zion. And so either we have this wrathful God of judgment who creates fear and trembling out of an understanding of his unapproachable holiness, which does, in fact, lead to obedience. But not desire, not love, not a relationship. If the God that we have is a God of Sinai alone, it doesn't change our motivation, it doesn't change our heart, it just changes our behavior. It's speeding down the road and seeing a police officer. You slow down, right? You slow down because in your heart you're convicted that you shouldn't be speeding? No, you slow down because you don't want to get a ticket. That's the God of Sinai. I'll do the right stuff so that I don't get punished. That if God is all, or what we get, if we don't go that way, we go to the God of Love Mountain. God's all love and grace, but he's all forgiveness in which case, our devotion will be limited. See, understanding and viewing God as being only love will lead to passion, but not devotion. 
It creates churches that will sing, dance, and shout the praises of God, but remain completely unchanged by him because there's no surrender, there's no transformation, there's no sacrifice or submission to him. We'll sing and shout how great he is, but never be any different because of it. Church God is and always has been the God of both. Sinai shows us his unapproachable holiness. Zion shows us his unfathomable grace. But you can't understand Zion without Sinai. That he's the God of both, that he invites us to a personal relationship with him in Jesus, but that is a personal relationship, not a casual relationship. That through Jesus, we can come to God with confidence, but confidence is not the same as irreverence. See, a lot of us struggle because of the guilt that we have in the past and religious teachings. We think that we can go to God and we can talk to him and we can have a personal relationship with him. But on the other side of it, sometimes we can get a little too casual with that and we start treating God like he's our gym bro. No. Like we have to remember, like, yes, you can go to God. You can have conversations with God without fear, but that doesn't, he's still the king of kings. He's still the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all life. He is a consuming fire. And here's why this is important. Everything that we do in this life flows out of our view and understanding of God. And if your view of God is only New Testament, it's only grace, it's only love, then you will take his grace for granted. Your devotion to him will be minimal. And God will become an idea to believe in, an ethic to aspire to, or worse, he'll become a part of your life that you turn to when you need something or you got nothing better to do. They say, football's not on, so huh? Jesus will never be that. He does not do casual acquaintances. He's Lord of all. We're not at all. See, what we have to understand, church, is that on the cross, Jesus didn't do away with God's holiness. He's satisfied it. But God has not changed. He demands obedience and deserves worship. He's unapproachable in his holiness, but opens his arms wide to us in his grace. He calls us to love him and to obey him. Jesus calls us, you want to follow me? you got to die to yourself every day. Deny yourself every day. Take up your cross every day and follow me. You want to follow me, and your life no longer is about you. It is to live exclusively and solely for me, that I would be the greatest, that I would be the first, that I would be the most by so much else in your life, that nothing in your world will ever compare to me. Because his kingdom will not be shaken. His love will not fail. His word is final. Worship comes from thankful hearts perpetually caught up in the wonder of the unfathomable grace of God. But how can our hearts be caught up? How can our actions be fueled by something that we fail to appreciate the significance of? When we fail to recognize the God of both mountains, what inevitably happens is we're grateful that God, you know, like 
accepts us even though we're not perfect, but we don't appreciate the significance of what he saved us from. Like, he didn't save you from being like not as good as you could be. He saved you from the wrath of God against sin. The description that Jesus gives of hell is this. Take the worst thing that you can possibly fathom and imagine, the worst suffering and most horrible thing that you can process, and he goes, that will be like heaven compared to how bad hell will be for eternity. That's what Jesus saves us from. Thankfulness, gratitude, an understanding of who God is should fuel our views, our values, our understandings. It should fuel our service and our pursuit, our sacrifice and our obedience. Because he still is a consuming fire. He is unchanged. But what the message of this chapter, of this section, is that Jesus met the demands of Sinai. So don't run to it. Don't run back to where you were before. Don't run back to other things. Don't run to the mountain of performance. Don't run to the mountain of rules. Don't run to the mountains of good behavior and moral living. Don't run to the mountains of your own merit. Don't run to the mountain of this world. Run to Jesus in all things. Run to Jesus when you're struggling. Run to Jesus when you don't know what to do. Run to Jesus when you're lost and alone. Run to Jesus because he and he alone gives us confidence to go before God. And he and he alone changes our hearts. See, what we have in him, the great promise that we have in the face of the fear and trembling of Sinai is that you will never have to experience it because he experienced it for you. Is that we become citizens of an unshakable kingdom given an unbreakable promise of an unending life of unimaginable joy with him. That God no matter how great your sin is, his grace is greater. That he didn't wait for you to call out to him. He didn't wait for you to reach for him. He didn't wait for you to get your act together and figure out how to be the best version of yourself. No, he reached down into the dark pit of your sin and he pulled you out of it. He sets us free. He gives us new life. He adopts us into his family, makes us his children, that we would be heirs of an unshakable kingdom and given an untakeable joy in him. How can we, who have been given such unimaginable grace, be content spending all of our time ranting about sandcastles? How can we be satisfied with the things of this world, with the social issues that surround us, when we have an unshakable, eternal kingdom that has been given to us, and we get to go out into the world and to proclaim the greatness of that kingdom and the greatness of that king and the grace that we have received, that in Jesus and in Jesus alone, it's okay to not be okay. Because he was okay for you. He was good for you. He was righteous for you, so you never have to be again. You never have to do it on your own. You never have to be perfect on your own. You just go to him. It is gratitude that fuels our pursuit, our obedience, our love, and our devotion.
but you can't be grateful for something if you don't appreciate what it is. Our God is the God of two mountains. He's the God of Sinai and the God of Zion. Don't focus on one to the neglect of the other, for it is when we hold them together that we experience the greatness of who He is and that we truly begin to experience the significance of what grace is. It is not just an idea. It is the very power that transforms hearts and changes lives. That no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, what you've done, God loves you, died for you, and brings you in, invites you into his kingdom that you would not get what you deserve, that you will not have to suffer the fear of Sinai because he made a greater way. So do not grow weary. In the face of persecution and struggle, do not grow weary, but run to Jesus and focus on his kingdom, not a kingdom of sand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give us. That you are holy and that you are loving. That you do not leave us in the despair of having to prove ourselves or be good enough for your standards, but that you met those standards for us so that through Jesus we could have life. God, I pray that our gratitude towards you that our gratefulness for all that Jesus had done would never be something that slides from the forefront of our mind, that we would wake up every day overwhelmed and unable to stand in recognition of the significance of what you have done for us. May that gratitude fuel our devotion, our pursuit, our obedience, and our transformation. That we would not just be but that we would live as citizens of your kingdom for your glory. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.